This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. Good morning, everybody. Um, and thank you very much for being here and joining us today. I want to talk a bit about um, self-care. But as is often the case with me, I, I, I have a different take on, on this. Um, I think that, um, and, and it sort of got inspired by, I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks now. It got inspired because I had seen a, a meme recently in which it was just a sort of cute way of saying, instead of thinking of self-care as something special, you know, going off to get a massage or taking a vacation or, or um, leaving our life. Uh, what if we developed the kind of life that included self-care, that we didn't need to escape from, that we didn't need to leave? And, um, and it really sort of, you know, on one hand you think, oh, that's really a that's a good thing, that's really cute. But then you kind of try, I at least, had to, I got sort of caught up in, in, well, what does that really mean, right? How do we develop that? And is there anything in Zen teachings in which that is, uh, that's talked about? And um, so immediately I thought about uh, Dogen because the, uh, he is the founder of the school and, um, and because he's, he's so prolific. And so I'm going to read a piece of the Fukan Zazengi, which is, is uh, the translation we're, I'm using is the one that's uh, chanted at San Francisco Zen Center. And in the beginning of it, he just sort of talks about posture and sort of the physicality of Zazen, right? But then he's, he does something really interesting because then he says, after all of that, he says, think of not thinking. How do you think of not thinking? Non-thinking. This in itself is the essential art of Zazen. The Zazen I speak of is not learning meditation. It is simply the Dharma gate of repose and bliss, the practice realization of totally culminated enlightenment. And I think that this is really interesting for a couple of reasons. One is, is that it starts with this idea of entering into a relationship with our physical existence, right? So he's talking about our posture and he's talking about how we sit. And, um, and then from there, he sort of goes, okay, and now what? Because our bodies and minds aren't separate, he then set, talks about the the posture of our mind, right? And I think that this is sort of key to, to what I think about when I think about self-care as a way of life rather than self-care as something special. It's also what I think about when I think about practice and Zen, not as some 
self-help feel good kind of thing, but really as a way to kind of think into and come into relationship with what's really going on, right? Because I think that the key to self-care as a way of life is this understanding of what's actually happening. And if I, if I live my whole life sort of aware of what's actually happening in my body, but also in my mind and in my heart and in my emotions, I start to be able to, to develop appropriate responses in the moments that things are happening. And those appropriate responses are healing. So even when, you know, I mean, life is hard sometimes. We've just seen that, right? We've, we've gone through a year where uh, anybody who's paying attention would be a little stressed out, right? And yet it doesn't have to throw us off our game. It doesn't have to throw us off our seat. It doesn't have to toss us out of our life. And we don't need to leave our life in order to heal from it and be healed by it. What's really amazing about Zen practice is when you start to sort of act out the understanding that you already are enlightened, that you already are um, connected to everything that you need. And that really what practice does is help us slow down enough that we can pay attention to it, right? If I, if I practice every morning sitting down and being quiet and focusing on what's happening, what's really happening, not trying to create something special, not trying to look for something special, not trying to follow some special thought, but just sit down and get quiet and let my body and my mind get quiet, I can start to hear that appropriate response. And what's really interesting is, is if you do that on a regular basis, it sort of becomes cumulative. It starts to become, it builds on itself. It's like going to the gym every day, right? Like you build these muscles of quiet, of access, of listening. So that when these moments of stress or these difficult periods in our life or these difficult emotions or, you know, the losses and the, the places where we miss our mark and, you know, all of the things that we face in our life, which is just actually part of human experience. Nobody gets to escape that stuff. What we get to do is heal and connect to and develop an appropriate response to those things. Start to develop the kind of life that's one, oriented by the vows we take to live in the world in particular kinds of ways, but also oriented by this idea of, I don't have to be at odds with my own experience. 
So I live in chronic pain and I have a disability. And it was really different. And it still sometimes is like, let's not sugarcoat it. I have days when it's really difficult to be me. And, but when I'm not at odds with that experience, right? When, when I don't, when I don't try to deal with my pain, when I don't try to push back against it, when I, when I just sort of go, okay, I'm in pain, but what else is going on? Or I'm having a difficult time with my body right now. What else is going on? Right? Like, cause it's never just one thing. But when I can sink down into the experience of it and not push against it or struggle with it, but just be like, okay, this is how it is right now. This is what it's like to be me. And knowing that it's not always gonna be like that, it always hasn't been like that. And that there's nothing wrong, there's nothing broken about it, right? Like given the causes and conditions of the body I was born into and the situations of my life, this is what I got. And there's nothing broken about it. And I think that that's the hardest piece, right? Realizing that there's nothing broken. There's nothing that needs to be fixed. You just have to meet it and then figure out well, how do I respond to this? What does it mean to have an appropriate response to whatever's going on? Good, bad, indifferent, the mundane sort of like the boredom of our life sometimes too. Like if I, if I just don't make any of it a big deal and just kind of meet each thing and try to respond, what happens is, is that one, it gets easier and easier and easier to get quiet. But then I start to notice the places where I'm healed, right? Where I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not believing the, the hype that sometimes society, American culture, or institutions that we're a part of or any of those things, I'm not buying the, the sort of difficulties that they sometimes can bring to us. You know, it's sort of like the day you decide that being queer is okay. For me anyway, that was a big deal, right? And I just sort of went, oh yeah, this is, this is okay. Like I can, this is not a big deal. This is not a problem. Everybody else in the world is saying it's a problem, but I don't see where the problem is. And it's the same kind of thing, right? Like you develop the skills to kind of go, oh yeah, this pain in my feet, not a problem. I just have to figure out how to respond to it. How do I treat it well? Oh, I'm having a difficult time walking today. Maybe I should use my cane so I don't fall down. Oh, I woke up this morning and my neck is out. Okay. 
maybe just lay here a few more minutes, put a heating pad on it and see what happens. Oh, it's still not, okay, well, let's wake up and try something else, right? Like we just keep meeting the experience of our, of our experience. There's a really wonderful book um, by a woman named Paula Arai called Bringing Zen Home. And she talks about this. She, um, it's an interview with a, uh, a group of uh, Zen, Japanese Zen women living in Japan. And, and it looks at um, their uh, rituals and their, the things that they do in their lives that help bring them healing and not just physicality, but, and she, she develops this concept of the way of healing. And, um, and this theory, this idea of healing, she says, the way of healing of my Buddhist women consociates, these women that she was studying and, and friends with, is most fundamentally a path of retraining themselves to act in harmony with the way that things are, impermanent and interrelated. Healing here is not a result of action. It is rather a way of acting, seeing, thinking, and holding your heart. It is an art to seek out ways to heal and not suffer. More specifically, it is an art of choosing to be grateful in the face of fear-driven and torment-ridden possibilities. This way of living and interpreting the world, themselves, events, and others requires practice and discipline. It is more an orientation to live in, to living than a clearly delineated and consciously followed course. If that's not, then, right, this idea of being beyond words and phrases, the idea of it's not about sitting zazen. It's about how do I live my life? How do I face my life? Right? And he even says this, the zazen I speak of is not learning meditation. It's simply the dharma gate of repose and bliss, the practice realization of totally culminated enlightenment. And then he says, even more so, perhaps, in, uh, perhaps in snares can never reach it. Once its heart is grasped, grasp, you are like a dragon gaining the water, like a tiger talking to the mountains. For you must know that just there, the right dharma is manifesting itself. And that from that first dullness and distraction are struck aside. I think that, you know, this is, um, this is what Dogen's asking of us, right? Like we learn meditation, we connect to our physical experience and we use that connection to our physical experience to sit down and listen to our life. To quiet ourselves so that we can hear the quietness of those that innate enlightenment that already exists in each of us. We are Buddha nature. We are already enlightened. We are, are already 
able to access everything we need. And to me, that's the, the most beautiful part of Zen practice and what has kept me here. Close to 20 years. Maybe longer. So I wanna encourage you to stop thinking of meditation as the end of it. But maybe that's just the beginning. Maybe that's actually the easy part. The harder part is to let that change you, to let that turn you in some kind of way. Let that help you hear the request of your practice. Hear the request of your experience in this moment so that you can respond appropriately. I like to leave extra time for uh, people to ask questions or talk about it or um, speak their own experience to this. And so with that, I'm gonna be quiet. I'm gonna invite you to, um, to bring forth whatever brings forth for you. Thank you very much. He's already done. David, I see you waving your hand. Yes, how are you? I'm great. How are you? It's good to see you, my friend. It's nice to see you. Um, you uh, mentioned it towards the beginning of your talk. Um, we're all already connected with everything we need. And I've kind of been rolling something in that ballpark around in my head lately in regards to desire mm. already have everything you need why desire anything and yet i desire right and i actually i'm i'm, I'm feeling that i don't have any problem with desiring <laughs> <laughs> that that's part of the mix of being human mm -hmm. so i'm just wondering if you could maybe about that a little bit. Oh, it's my favorite topic. I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I lead whole weekends on, on this topic. Um, there isn't a problem with desire. I think that sometimes we think that Buddhism is about getting rid of desire and that's not the case. When you actually look at what's being said, it's really about what's my relationship to it Right, so desires, I mean, I have desires for all kinds of things, partially related to sexuality, but also related to all kinds of other things, right? And it's, the problem's not that desire, but what do I do with it? How do I respond to it? What's the appropriate 
like, how do I, you know, what does it say? What is it asking for? And is that appropriate according to my vows, according to my own ethical standards, but also in accordance with everything else that's going on in my, my world? I think that I've, you know, I've practiced a long time and I've never met anybody who didn't have desire. And I've met some really amazing people who have uh, tons more experience at this than I do and also have um, uh, what I would say, you know, are really amazing, compassionate, loving, gentle, caring people who, you know, by all intents and purposes are enlightened, whatever that means. And they still have this relationship to desire. In my own life, I've started to really just kind of be at peace with the fact that I have these things and want these things or need these things or that the desire arises. And, and when I'm at peace with it, I can start to hear the truth of it, right? Because I think one of the things that happens for us is we get so caught up in not either not wanting to have it or judging it or having some opinion about it is if, if it's okay or not to desire these things that we don't access the truth of it. And so, you know, some of it's got shame and, and other issues tied up to it. So, so part of it is to just sort of chill out and be like, oh, okay, so this is okay. Doesn't, and it doesn't mean I have to go fulfill it. It just means that that's there and that this is part of my life. And then when I can not be at odds with it, I can start to hear it. And what's really interesting is that as I started listening, I started to realize that, you know, I would have desires for, oh, I really want to go have sex with this person, or I want to go, you know, I'm going to, I want to go to the bathhouse, or I want to go to the bar, or I want to go pick up somebody or whatever. And, and then it was like, oh, wait, when I started to listen to the desire, there was all kinds of other stuff there that was actually the request. It had nothing to do with going out and getting naked, but had everything to do with intimacy and loneliness and fulfillment and being okay and, you know, uh, being thought of as attractive. Like there's all these things that were attached to this thing that was happening in the moment that I couldn't recognize until I got quiet and at peace with it and let it just teach me something. I think, yeah, I think that's how we deal with desire. It's the same as everything else. We just get quiet, listen to it, and let it tell us the request. Underneath our opinions, underneath our stories, underneath the cacophony of noise that life is. Did that help you? 
Yes, the um, <laughs> one thing I found is you, you're talking about how it's not just one thing, it's very, it's complex and layered. There's stuff maybe there that's being expressed through desire, for instance, um, that is not maybe fully noticeable right off the bat. And uh, I found in my own experience that sometimes I'm, it takes me a little while, uh, a little bit of, a, a, you know, a few moments or a day or whatever to reflect back on my thoughts and experience and say, oh, that's what was going on. And I guess the only thing I would wish would be that it would happen more in the moment mm -hmm. because then the response would be more complete or more appropriate. That, that's yeah. the only thing I would add to that from, you know, from where I sit. Absolutely, absolutely. And I don't know what it is that makes the difference between having it in the moment and not having it in the moment. Or, you know, the reflection happening a week later or whatever. Other than often it's harder for me to get attached, to get clear about it if I've fulfilled it instead of listen to it. If I just jump in automatically, it often, uh, I can't get the answer for a couple, a little while. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's complex and it's difficult and, you know, and, and there isn't any shortcut, <laughs> uh, which kind of sucks. Well, it was definitely a learning experience. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Just wanted to say thank you for that. Pedro, thank you. Thank you for that approach of self-care. I feel like a lot of times we're off and we're on and we're black and we're white and we forget that things don't have to be, you know, one way or the other. Like I think most people, and myself included, think self-care means you have to, you know, it can't be a daily part of your life and a daily activity. It's a, you know, it's a once a year, um, I don't know, holiday or festival. <laughs> pointing out that doesn't have to be so. Yeah, when I was in school, I used to wait for um, Sashin. Uh, usually the, the um, The, the December one, the one that happens uh, right around, um, and, and it, it has a name and I can't remember, oh, Rahatsu. So, you know, that was like my time to break. <laughs> uh, but then it, it wasn't so satisfying, right? Like I would do, do the Rahatsu and at the end of it, I would still be the same me. <laughs> and I would think, oh, I did it wrong. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. The, the, the mind that says, oh, I did this wrong. Uh, I don't, not that you could, you know, like looking at it now, I go, well, there's no really way to do machine wrong. There's no real way to do a retreat wrong. 
There's just the way it happens. Uh, so yeah, this, this idea of, of just, it took a lot of, once I started sort of making it a regular part of my life and all of that and stopped thinking of it as something different, it took a lot of the pressure off of when I go on retreat or when I, you know, do sashin or I, you know, can, can go on vacation. You're making me think of when I first sat in, a, you know, in Colorado and I would take breaks between, you know, engaging with the Zen center there. Mm -hmm. Frustrated, I'd be like, it's like I'm always starting over and like never getting this quite right. And now I'm like, yeah, it's like I'm always starting over. <laughs> and, well, but I don't know about right. Who cares? Okay, about Exactly. I'm not on camera, so he can't. Oh, nice to hear your voice. to something called Trishna as the source of suffering. Mm -hmm. And people tend to translate that word as desire, but I don't think that's quite right. And its literal meaning, of course, is thirst. Uh, so it's like this pervasive, inescapable something or other that's driving us. I wondered if you, you, you would elaborate a little bit on that uh, compared to the, the uh, moment by moment, daily fluctuations of desire that everyone experiences. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the the naming of that as desire is a misnomer. I also don't like the naming of it as uh, clinging because um, I think that that also falls short. And it is this, it is this wanting it to be different. Wanting you know, wanting my experience to be different than it is, whether it's I want it to last longer or be bigger when it's joyful or it feels good or whatever, um, or I want it to go the fuck away, right? When it's painful and hard. Or just like, I, you know, oh, I'm not okay with wanting this thing, right? It's not appropriate for me to desire this person or, um, you know, I'm fat, so I shouldn't want to eat ice cream. All of that is just wanting it to be different. And I think that when we look at what the, eight, the Eightfold Path is, and when we look at what, it, what is our actual activity, it's about coming into contact with and making peace with this is the story of my life. This is what my life is. This is it. And can I not want it to be otherwise? You know, and then we forget. <laughs> and, you know, we, 
we forget that and we try to try it over again, right? But yeah, I don't like the translations of that word much. Um, I think that in, there are a lot of words that really like. I don't. I don't like the word dukkha either. The way we translate it. I think that English falls short in a lot of ways for what those things are. Um, and so, yeah, can, can we really look at what it really is? And I think that, you know, the second noble truth just tells us that when we want our life to be different than it is, and we forget that it's gonna change every minute, every moment, we're going to suffer. And, you know, Dogen points to this idea of Zazen, not as meditation Zazen, but Zazen as our life. Sitting down and, and the expression of Dharma in this very body and mind in this very moment in time. I think he's on to something. So yeah, thank you for that turning. I think it's vital to unpacking all of this about how do I make a life that doesn't need me to escape it. Did you want to add anything else that I missed? Uh, no, no, I, I agree. We need to be more careful with our translations. Both, both Dukkha and Tursna refer to something far more profoundly existential than just desire and suffering. Exactly. And if we look at our life, we can start to understand what it is that they're actually pointing to. Like it's not un it's not unknowable. We already know it. We just need to sit down, get quiet, and study it, learn it, let ourselves experience it. Um, and you know that's the practice of a lifetime. John, I notice your hand is up. Is that you're raising your hand? Hi, yeah, uh, Reverend Daigon. Hi. Um, uh, so let's see. Um, well, I'm, I think it's hard to say something um, like kind of like fault finding when you're when you're over there on the high seat, but I'm I'm tempted to do it. May, do you, I can try like the gentle version or I can try like the harsh version, whichever one. Uh, either one is fine with me. Okay. I'm not that attached to being right. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, let's see. Uh, uh, so, Tignan Han tells a story of the 
I don't think it was his teacher. I think it was somebody who helped found the temple that he, he lived in when he was a boy. And this, um, uh, right, right around the end of this teacher's, not his life, but his mom's life, he left, the, he left her home and went down to the market and got a fish, a pretty big fish, and um, carried it kind of like on his shoulder back home. And then um, uh, people kind of were like, what kind of Zen teacher? You know, because I think, I think in Vietnam, they're, they're pretty much veggie. So they're like, who is this guy? Uh, and, but he, uh, Ding Han, it was also like, I mean, their, their centers are vegan. He was like, there's somehow there was like this interpretation, like he was accepting his mom's life by, by buying this fish. What, what do you make of that? I think that, um, well, it's, it's something that happens to me quite frequently. Lots of people have ideas about who I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to be. Or, and I have lots of opinions about how us other people are supposed to be or, you know, all of those things. And I think um, just like everything else, those are just opinions. And I think, you know, we have to look at our life and respond to it appropriately. And nobody can know what that is except for the person living that life. And so to try and, and make it like I know what's right for you or you could possibly know what's right for me or like I think that that's uh, where we get in trouble and that's how we end up with um, institutions and... and uh, people that hurt other people. So I would say, and, and what I make of that is that, you know, one, give everybody the benefit of the doubt that they might be making the right decision for them. Also, you know, Blanche Hartman used to say to me all the time, uh, head down, mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> and we would sit we spent a lot of time sort of standing next to each other and we would just kind of whisper that to each other on a regular basis because we both suffer from this idea that we somehow know better. Right. And so, yeah, I think, I think, you know, it's a really good lesson in mind your own damn business. Thank you very much for that question. <laughs> and I think that's a really great spot for us to maybe end. Mm -hmm.